Hello there and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and I welcome you to the first official episode of the show. Final Games is a podcast inspired by the former of the BBC radio broadcast show, Desert Island Discs. In a similar situation to the guests of that show, my guests are stranded in a hypothetical deserted place where they cannot leave. On this stranded island or place, my guests can only take eight games with them to play for the rest of their days. So what eight games would they choose? Why have they chosen these games? Or what is it that makes these games mean so much to them? I look to try and find out which games have inspired my guests and maybe help them on the path to where they are today. The man who has the honour of being my first official guest is the radio personality Pete Donaldson. Hello, uh, Pete. Uh, goodness me, that's a lot of pressure, Liam. Goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> lovely, lovely to be uh, be here, and uh, lovely to be uh, yeah helping out on the first one, I suppose. Oh, it's it's absolutely superb to have you on. Uh, when <laughs> just... I when I originally hit you up about it, I was pretty nervous that you'd just be like, oh, you know, get lost. Who is this guy? Because you'd only done like a test kind of recording. Yeah, I'd done a pilot episode. Yeah. Yeah, and I um I got the. Twitter uh, DM or whatever yeah. when I was in an airport in Japan I think it was so I, I actually <laughs> How so I actually started listening to the show while I was on a plane and it was uh, it was a lot of fun actually I was annoyed that that person chose Shenmue so I <laughs> Shenmue. well but, you've got some pretty great games on your list today <laughs> that we're going to talk about a lot that I haven't even played personally myself a uh, little bit before my time but it's yeah. going to be awesome yeah, talking to you about that. it <laughs> yeah, I so mean, let's get into it Firstly, about you yourself, you studied in Leicester and uh, multimedia, and then you sort of have shot on from them, working at places like XFM Radio with Alex Zane and Lauren Laverne, you know, and now you're working as a radio DJ at Absolute Radio, and as a personal favourite of mine, you're one of the Football Ramble guys. Yeah. That's just that's correct. <laughs> basically, what do you do on a daily basis then? Uh, it kind of oscillates between like it's mainly sort of voiceovers. That's where the money comes in, okay. I guess. And then you've got your uh, meeting to veg of the uh, radio show in the evening that allows you to do a, a few more voices and so. So it's mainly just writing links about bullseye and fun house and stuff like that, and then going to uh, read them out in front of a microphone every every couple of days. So. Fantastic guy. Do you do say you do have a lovely voice? That does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's get you to use that lovely voice and talk about some fantastic games. Mm. So I, mean, talk- I mean, some of them aren't fantastic, that's the problem, but I think... <laughs> I think- a game doesn't necessarily have to be fantastic. I think some of my favourite games have been so horrifically broken. Uh, they're <laughs> barely worth um, even being described as games. They're just a mess, and that's why I love them. I just think that somebody, you know, put poured their heart and their soul into it or something, and then either didn't finish them or or just you know they, they got shipped before they were happy and i don't know it's just something about an unfinished broken game that just makes me a little bit happy and a bit hopeful. <laughs> I don't know why. Well. You can tell me all about them. So we're going to start with your first game. Um, Coming up is a piece of music from Monkey Island 2.
So that was Monkey Island 2. Pete, your first game. One of the most, in, let's say, famous adventure games out there. Mm, yeah. Um, originally yeah. on the DOS, released in November 1991. Yeah. Created by the now, unfortunately, defunct LucasArts. Mm. And directed by Rod Gilbert. And on the design team was Double Fine's, you know, Tim Schafer. Everyone knows who's Tim Schafer is these days. Why is Monkey Island 2 the first game on your list, then, Pete? Um, I think it was one of the first games I ever really coveted. Uh, one of the first games I, I got obsessed about before I even played it. Uh, and I remember sort of going into WH Smith's every week and just looking at this kind of... Uh, it was almost like the click, uh, the scene in Wayne's World where they want to buy the guitar and they, and they just <laughs> mine. And I would like stroke the box, the one remaining copy, the only copy, 37 quid, much more expensive than any other video game I'd seen before uh, in WH Smith's. I would sort of stroke the box every every week and just sort of tell myself that one day um, I would be owning uh, the 11 floppy disks. <laughs> there was a lot of floppy disks for A game. lot of floppy disks. And these were, you know, double-sided, you know, diskettes back in the day. Yeah. I went from an Amstrad to an Amiga um, and... It still held almost a megabyte worth of data, and uh, yeah, it still needed eleven discs to uh, to be realised, so to speak. But it, it was just one of those ones where I think I'd, I think I may have played it around a friend's house on a dodgy okay. um, on a dodgy copy because back then everything was copied on the Amiga. The Amiga was pretty infamous for piracy back Massively. in the day. X Copy was uh, one of the programs that allowed you to uh, duplicate discs, and, and that was kind of that, that's got a hell of a lot to answer for, quite frankly, <laughs> to the death of the Amiga and piracy uh, at largely. But, yeah, I mean, it, I think I played a copy of that. But because I think the biggest copy protection or the, or the, uh, the biggest kind of um, way of dealing with pirates is that if you put something on 11 floppy disks, one of them's going to be dodgy. One of them's going to be broken. So, <laughs> Well, so you can also lose them pirates. as well. They're pretty easy to lose. Yeah, exactly. I just remember, I remember the exact paint-flecked um, birch sort of chair that I had in my bedroom that I would lay out 11 floppy disks uh, like in in a matrix sort of system, because um, <laughs> you know you every few minutes you'd have to swap a, a floppy disk. It was the sheer weight of animation and um, watercolored uh, hand drawn background. Yeah. Well, it used the uh, Scum engine, didn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was it was kind really of, famous engine. Yeah, it was it was one that went on to um, do stuff like uh, to, to be used for stuff like um, Full Throttle, yep. uh, the excellent Indiana Jones and the Fit, Fit of Atlantis game. Yep. Uh, but this was the, the, the first and I think last game that really saw. Captured my imagination uh, using that system. I think it, I think it's fair to say. But it was just, as I said, I was going to WH Smith and, and, and stroke this thirty-seven pounds worth of um, uh, video gamery. And so, like, how did you finally get hold of it then? Uh, after pouring over it for a long time, when did you actually pounds. finally get to get the game and dig in yourself? Paper round. Um, I saved up and saved up, and I spent my money wisely. Let's say it was a it was a long game. It was a fun game, and and, and just. I think um, I seem to remember drawing Guybrush Streetwood, the, the main character from the game, uh, this kind of wannabe pirate uh, who played through um, one adventure before, yeah. um, one. And uh, yeah, I, I remember drawing him on my exercise book. I remember reading the solution um, backwards and forwards before I'd even played the game. So you knew all the answers already. <laughs> I was just fully. Uh, excited and interested in this kind of this magical world before I'd even uh, played it and it, like the Amiga part was good but I mean you were squashing down a 256 colour um, watercolour background that someone's lovingly 
um, handcrafted and painted uh, into 32 colours on the Amiga. So it wasn't the best way to have played that game. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it just um, it, it was a culmination of a lot of hard work at my end and three quid a shift. Yeah. Uh, paper round um so it was, it was a good few weeks before i could just to be fair 37 pounds then um games go for around 40 50 quid now most games were fairly cheap and you'd have the budget the budget yeah. uh, games as well and that was kind of like my level but it, it, i remember it being a good seven pounds or eight pounds more expensive than any other video game and uh, i just saw that as a mark of quality quite frankly yeah well lucas arts at the time they were more they were one of the triple a developers that you would mm. sort of consider a ea and ubisoft in now mm. it's weird to see where they are you know well where they aren't now for some of the back catalogue of games but Monkey Island 2 you know as you said on some of the systems gorgeous graphics and the Scum Engine is still playable today Oh, massively! You've got the, you've got kind of indie versions of it. The AGA, it's AGA engine, um, like the, the, the kind of um, indie developers yeah. have made their own video games off, and that's all based off the push pull, um, pick up, put down um, um, system of yeah. the, the Monkey Island Two. Really perfected. I mean, there had been kind of graphical user interfaces before, and you're standing on the shoulder of giants to a certain extent. Yeah. You had the Sierra series, um, which were mainly text based, and, and same with some of the early LucasArts ones and stuff. But it, they really did massive it and, and the economy of uh, object usage and the economy of uh, animation and 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 uh, just more than anything else it was just a funny game and it was very there funny. wasn't there wasn't that much funny writing in video games back then um studios were smaller maybe there wasn't really a way to portray humor no really no i completely agree and and, and i couldn't remember and i still can't remember a game that kind of through you to several different locations in their in their lifespan you know it's, yeah. it's three or four acts i think four maybe four or five acts and you go from island to island to island and you know a lot of disc swapping obviously <laughs> but, uh, but it was it was fairly well organized as a recall so and, 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 do you have like a favorite puzzle that you remember or a, a favorite bit of that game that really has kind of like when every time you think of monkey island and what was great about it is there a certain thing that you remember quite vividly? I remember um, in the opening act, there's um, there's a ruffian called Lago Legrand. Yeah, Legrand, <laughs> and uh, he gets a bucket on his head um, full of mud, uh, so that you can get his um, either his wig or his shirt. I think you have to go and steal his shirt, and uh, you put a bucket of mud on his head, and you've you've filled the bucket of mud in a swamp where the voodoo lady lives, and yeah. it just it, when I'm speaking about it now, it's starting all coming back to me. Every, <laughs> every last frame of animation, and back then I was a, such a big fan of um, of like Don Bluth and Disney animation, so seeing such character. Uh, in the animation, squeeze into a few floppies. Later on, there's a bit where you meet your mum and dad, and they're skeletons, uh, and they do a little dance. Um, and we talk about the scum system. Uh, the IMU system is probably just as important. The uh, way that you, when you would enter a different location, when something okay. happened, the music would react to what you were doing, and it was just. It was just light years ahead of everything else. It was just full of character. I mean, how many times in a video game have you got, like, a, a blind cartographer uh, <laughs> and you have to steal his monocle? There should be more blind cartographers in uh, in games, I think. So you are quite a funny guy. Well, come on now. You are. You are very I'm funny. I'm explaining it here, but... <laughs> Do you... Did, like, Monkey Island sort of... Were you naturally, like, funny anyway, or was it... You know, the humour of Monkey Island and I wouldn't say 
attribute it just to that and similar things like that. But is that sort of what kicked off, you know, sort of the way you sort of humorize things when you talk about things? I, I, I think there's, the, I think it's a, it, it's part of, it's a part of growing up, isn't it? And you, you kind of gravitate to things that, that excite you and, and, and make you smile and I've never been a, a serious person, but I think, um, spending such time in a world that was so rich and so would go for the gag if there was a gag coming. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's kind of something you live by to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I can, <laughs> I can agree with you. Um, you know, how, how can you make a situation where you're being chased basically by a ghost pirate mm. funny and totally. lighthearted? It just makes you sort of think differently about situations. Oh, massively. And, and, and like, um, and I think, you know, it was one of the first games that had a bit of a twist to the end. You know, even yeah. if it was a bit of a jokey twist, it didn't really need to be there. Um, <laughs> but, they, but, you know, it was just... it. The puzzles were great. They were pretty easy to work out. Or they were pretty... At least, well, if you'd read the solution <laughs> beforehand. Uh, they were pretty easy to uh, work out if you... Um, uh, thought about it for any length of time uh, you were never really stuck there was no permadeath you'd never die for some stupid reason that's something yeah. that when i finished the monkey island 2 the monkey island 2 i'd go back and i'd play i think kicks budget um set of games and there was kicks xl and they did a lot of re-releases and rehashes of um old sierra games okay. and lucas arts as well yeah and there was some um and so I, I went back and played like the police quest series and the king's quest series and the quest for glory series and there were certain games that attempted the level of panache and the level of uh, devotion to the craft but just simply because of the genuine just the framework where you would die for no bloody reason or the <laughs> stupid rule for example police quest certainly the first and second ones um they were a little bit uh they're a little bit older than um Monkey Island too, and, and and probably Monkey Island as well. But they would just punish you for not knowing that you had to read someone their Miranda rights before you arrested arrested them and stuff like that. It yeah, the kind of obscure, yeah, really perverse. obscure kind of stuff that you just would never think of, really, unless you were told. Just completely not a devotion to dull minutiae of police <laughs> and you're like this isn't fun none of this is fun so before we move on uh, to the next game you are quite well known for actually having a monkey island tattoo oh yes yes I do yes I do on my uh, on my leg I do have the ghost pirate of the chuck in kind of like a pixelated form um, and I got that about two years ago I think it was he, he's yeah. now joined on another leg by uh, Manny Calavera from uh, from Grim Fandango as yeah. well um, and, awesome! Uh, I have seen a picture of it. It is pretty cool. <laughs> but, um, I think I think Lechuk got me on telly. There was this TV show uh, that I think Brooker was involved in. Charlie Brooker, the um, British television presenter, and he uh, and he did this top 100 video games of all time. And I think I was featured fairly heavily in the Monkey Island bit, and barely anywhere else in the program, simply because I had the Monkey <laughs> Island tattoo. So uh, the annoying thing about um, appearing on telly and showing off your tattoo is that um, a few weeks later, a bloke looked at my leg and went you've been on the telly and <laughs> looked at my face which is funny. I've been on telly a couple of times not very often but the only you... man to ever be recognised by his legs yeah it's really weird really weird. <laughs> me and David Beckham I don't know <laughs> at least yours aren't insured for like a million or <laughs> you're quite right nobody would nobody right would. so let's move on to your next game and we're going to have a, a bit of music from that and then we'll go right into it oh
So that was uh, No Cigar by Mill and Colin on the soundtrack of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, your next game on the list. Amazing. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, developed uh, and released in September of 2000 for the PlayStation 1 by the unfortunately, again, now defunct Neversoft. Yeah. It was the second game to feature the Birdman himself, Tony Hawk, and it had a bitching soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of... I still name... Lagwagons, um, May 16th is, you know, d- definitely my favourite punk rock song. You had like Anthrax on there, Consumed, yeah. Rage, The Swinging uh, Office as well. Yeah. The Power Man 5000, Papa yeah. Roach, Rage Against the Machine. It just, it, was- it, it just, it, it kind of, it was, it hit at the time in my life where I was getting into these bands I was getting into your Mill and Collins you know FX's your yeah, um, yeah. Mad Caddies and stuff it was like one of those fat records compilations of, of like the late 90s early early 90s that it just, was it went like, from sort of because it's quite well known that Tony Hawk picks the tracks himself so he gets mm. them sent to him and he listens through to be fair the man has taste and he's able to put together quite the playlist mm, damn right yeah and there was, a, there was a lot more punk rock on it on there yeah. But, but, a lot of these bands also weren't that well known at the time as no. well, and then sort of were pushed into popularity because of the Pro Skater games. It was it was a game and it was an experience and it was a soundtrack that was definitely of its time. Um, I've not gone and played it uh, in some time, but I, I, I think it might not hold up uh, <laughs> as well. As I well. remember spending hours and hours myself playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Two with my brother and just turning all the cheat modes on and just skating right yeah. to the fucking sky and it, was just, like it was just it was just um a game that um it got the mechanics of the central character and the world and how he interacted with that world so right and it was weighted yeah. correctly and you know it was it and once you've got that sorted i believe in games like that you know once fifa's got the ball physics and the and the um collision detection right you can just have a lot of fun with it, effectively. Yeah. So it's like you make your job so much easier, and every other, every extra bit, every accoutrement is just that. Yeah. It's just something extra to add to this kind of framework that's so tight and so well uh, observed and so well put together. Yeah, uh, I think what was like sort of special about Tony Hawk was it was a really good skating game that had professional skaters like Bob Burnquist and mm. um, Bucky Lasik and Bam Majera and all that but it was the, a good game as well because it had game elements where you know you could, if you wanted to fuck around you could fuck around mm. you know collecting spray cans and letters and you could you know customise your boards your characters and everything while also you know if you were a, a skater and you wanted to take it seriously you could do really good runs and that kind of thing it was like a perfect balance of everything it wanted to do oh, it, was, it was just it was just a great playground you didn't even need uh, the licensed boards or the dicky shoe dicky's shoes or yeah. any shoes you didn't need the um the, these you know rock star um skateboarders who probably weren't that big before they were in a Tony Hawk's Pro Skate. No, definitely. I remember because I used to skateboard a lot at that time. Um, I remember knowing them because of, uh, you know, the Extreme Sports Channel that used to be mm. on Sky. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, light speed, um, is it light speed? The old um, videotapes that used to get sent. Yeah. So used to go yeah. to sketch shops and buy them. <laughs> yeah, used to get sent them by Route 1 and yeah, other yeah. companies. Um, just, I remember at the time knowing their names, but not really knowing who they are. And then you end up like playing them in the game. And then all of a sudden they're like, they are like rock stars pretty much. Mm, huge. And it came at a time when I was, how old were I? 19, 18 or 19. And it was kind of like, it had, it had that turn of the millennium sort of angsty jackass feeling spared. Definitely was sort of leaning in towards like the, I don't know if you've ever watched the old CKY videos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It before. was definitely leaning towards yeah. the sort of more badassery mm. kind of punk not so much like Tony Hawk himself is quite a clean cut guy yeah but the game was badass with loads of like badass elements to it just a playground as I said it's just, it's just playground it was is a really good one it was the last time in my life that I had um, like enough time to f- properly master something you know yeah. what I mean it was yeah. it was hard to master I think that game but it was easy to get started it wasn't like your skate 1s and skate 2s and skate 3s I think it was just one of those games where you just like you could just if you wanted to go over there, it seemed clear how you got over there. Um, with the games, that, the, the more realistic games that came later, I don't have time to get started. You know what I mean? I, I don't have time to um, to get started on those games. And if it's not yeah. immediately apparent what I've done wrong, I'm like, uh, yeah. you know what? Okay. As good as the skate games are, um, and mechanically they're pretty great, um, it, it was almost like you had to learn Street Fighter type exactly yeah to do like kick flips and 360 flips and that kind of stuff yeah i mean it was that game on the ps2 and um like winning 11 <laughs> i can't remember the guy used to shout it was winning 11 <laughs> uh, the the japanese version of um Prever, Carter, Prever, and, yeah. and then and then i think we went back it, it, i was just living in this stinking six bedroom student flat with a lot of blocks and that was the first game i think we all came together along with maybe prev three or four yeah um we all sort of would spend ages just trying to perfect a run or take turns and each round was like only a couple of minutes long and again you know they just thought about it you know that they knew what kind of people would be playing this game and they knew they did they definitely would get passed from left to right and yeah if you fall over you know pass on the controller yeah exactly exactly or bail i think the engine might have um i think the engine might have come from a like a neversoft's first game was this weird bruce willis tie-in and um and it's weird that that kind of kicked everything off that was what they built the engine for and they just sort of modified it each time but they just um they, they just got everything right when it came to like the waiting and, and i remember reading i remember playing the second game before i went back and played the first game to be honest but um i could see why Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 became such a legendary game and yeah, why the third one, one didn't why the first one didn't hit quite so yeah, hard. It's definitely the one that is the most popular, that sticks in people's minds yeah. even now. Yeah, perhaps it was the soundtrack, perhaps it was just the different things you could do, perhaps they just mastered it, it mastered yeah. their own their own discipline, but I don't remember um, being quite so warm towards the third or the fourth one as I recall. Or oh, when they became the Underground series, where they took on a bit more of that jackass kind of role. Yeah, I mean, I played them, but I was just like, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course it was. And then, you know, you got the stand-on controller and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, and that uh, thing that didn't work. <laughs> I've seen recall the, um, the iOS version of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. They replaced all the music. I know, obviously, licensing is uh, expensive, yeah. and they probably wouldn't have been able to afford it for an iOS release, but I'm like... You've literally tore the heart out of that game. <laughs> You've taken the soul would, of what was great. I would have happily thrown my phone into the sea if I'd been near a, a patch of water <laughs> at that time. It's dreadful, dreadful decision. 
Oh, well, that's awesome. So I guess we'll move on to your third game. Mm. As unfortunately, we're a bit pressed for time because you are a professional radio broadcaster and have to get to your job. Yeah, imagine that. People <laughs> going, wow, that man's on the radio. Just stumbly, <laughs> invective nonsense. <laughs> right, so we'll listen to some music from your next game. So that was some awesome, <laughs> very early chiptune music from the game Turbo Esprit. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah, a game released in May of 1986 on the ZX Spectrum. It was then released later on on the Amstrad and the Commodore 64, created by Jarrell Software. And it was pretty much one of the first earliest examples of like a free-roaming game, basically. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the first game, um, certainly, that I can remember that, that, that allowed you to go anywhere you liked. Um, so much so that I can't really remember what you were supposed to actually be doing. It's, uh, it's like it, a racing game. Um, yeah. You, it was, like, spoke to people and then you raced them around the streets or something. I yeah. actually haven't played it myself, but I've watched videos of it since mm-hmm. talking to you. And... It looked pretty cool for the time, but rough now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, it's as rough as old old books now. I mean, kind of um, growing up, my my first video game system was was the Amstrad CPC 6128, I believe. And uh, it was just one of those games that I don't ever remember... how I got it I think it was probably Dad's Mate that's how I used to get a lot of games Dad's Mate got it um, and it was the, I think it was the first game that I'd transferred from because um, you used to load up a lot of the games on tape um, and I think it was the first game that I tried to take off tape and put onto disc uh, using this uh, using this weird bit of public domain software that was called the Bonzo Meddler. The I remember Bonzo it. Meddler. Bonzo Meddler, written by just some you know whiz kid bloke in his bedroom in in Britain, and it was an outside program that would record tape games into a weird kind of disc batch file. So they'd load really fast, but they wouldn't really be designed for discs. So, so they, they were they were kind of broken. Off. Yeah, pretty much. And I just remember it having no instructions. And to be honest, this game required a lot of instructions. I think the whole deal was um, you had to spend your time just ramming drug dealers, uh, Chase HQ style. But I couldn't be sure. I remember distinctly um, a big um, part of the game was following cars and not getting too close to them. Okay. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever seen that mechanic before. Where, you know, you'd have to follow someone very carefully uh, so as oh. not to spook them. They're and, the kind uh, of missions I absolutely hate. It's oh, so annoying, aren't they? So annoying. I don't remember them being. They seem to be more annoying, uh, with the greatest respect to yourselves, uh, on the Grand Theft Auto games than they ever were. <laughs> I do not take personal <laughs> events to that. <laughs> but, um, but it was like just the first game that I remember and it was the first game for a long time that I think allowed you to go anywhere I think even Rock, I think even Rockstar um, may have admitted in an interview back in the day that the first couple of Grand Theft Autos were in the spirit of Turbo Esprit and uh, Esprit is it Turbo Esprit or Esprit I don't actually know I'm not a big I would assume it's Esprit like the car Esprit, because it was developed yeah. 
in conjunction with Lotus themselves. Yeah. And then I the mean, car was obviously a Lotus Esprit. What I would say is that if, I mean, there's not that many um, Lotus Esprits fitted with a, um, a machine gun on the front. But <laughs> if, if there is, I mean, it was, I mean, the, the main problem, the main kind of, um, again, it's one of those things where it's like, it was slightly broken, very goofy, um, but it was just um, the first time I'd ever seen like an overhead map and, and being able to go wherever you like. The, the, your main, um, your main, main issue your main kind of uh, uh, danger in the game was traffic lights um, not taking turns properly the turns were just like something it was the same because it was kind of like um, behind the car view slightly elevated um, like your classic um, you know third person shooter or third person uh, driving game okay um, and, and you kind of you'd if you missed by a second or not even a second a millisecond uh, the turn you'd sort of spin out uh, and smash into a wall. It, it was reminiscent of the um, turning style of um, the Batman the movie, the first Batman the movie game, the licensed one. Okay. Um, with, that featured Prince's bat dance. Um, that had a similar <laughs> when you were driving the car. That I think that had a similar. You'd use a batarang to swing, and if you didn't swing at the right time, you'd just smash into a wall. And it was just janky. It was very janky. Um, and, and, and as a record, if I remember right, it, it took a long time for them to make it because um, it was, you know, open world. It was kind of free form. And yeah, I remember, time, I remember reading about it and the creator, I forget his name, unfortunately, but he said, he, he said it took 11 months, which at the time was the longest mm. game. Um, he longest time he'd ever spent making a game. Yeah, people which generally... now is immense. If you finish a game in eleven months now, like you're a god and it's not broken. <laughs> but yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was longer than any one of its time. But I remember it was the first game that I really remember sort of fighting with the mechanics of the game when it came to the, well, I guess excuse the pun, mechanics of the car. I suppose <laughs> it was uh, it was a, it was a diff- very very difficult game, and, uh, and and back then games were incredibly punishing. They didn't really care uh, whether you won or lost. Very different to the experiences you'd uh, you get nowadays. So why, like, it's like you, you know, you've said about the mechanics being pretty janky and sort of fighting against them. But why is it like this is on your list then? Like, out of all the games you've ever played, is it just because of where you were at the time, all the sort of memories as a kid? I mean, we'll get on to why I love certain Amstrad games. Um, I think we've got a couple more on the list. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it was definitely a time and a place, and it was back then. You just have a lot more time to explore and a lot more time to experiment, and you probably have more games. Um, and, and so you can so if this if, if one particular one kind of sticks out you're like well it's got enough competition I probably sat there with a, when I had an Amiga with 100 floppy disks each with a different game on um, and on the Amstrad similar sort of situation you'd get those kind of massive um, 99 games in a £9.99 pack <laughs> I uh, wish you got that now on, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be a ridiculous amount of games Bourjolet I think or, or Bourjolet um, would release these massive packs of tapes um, that would just have random crap but you just spend ages just looking in the back going is this what I want to buy because uh, I'll have to buy it for 1% of its content yeah well I admit like at the time I can imagine because I've you know I've watched videos on it it was really colourful mm, it yeah. had like neon sort of theme at night and that kind of thing mm, but yeah, it, it less- did look very colourful and and yeah, I mean less so on a on a green screen Amstrad CPC monitor, but you know, <laughs> but uh, which was it was actually quite hard to um, figure out what was what was going on. To be quite frank, God, I sound so old. <laughs> like staring at old Game Boy screens that are coming yeah. black and white. Yeah, and 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 that was another thing. Like you, if you looked at the map at any point, um, the game would continue. So you're driving down the street looking at a map, 
It was probably, the, you know, the earliest example of don't use your mobile, don't read a map while you're driving. <laughs> Pull to the side of the road. For just out. screen burn tears of, like, yeah. maps just bought up continually. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, I guess we'll move on to another abstract mm. game of yours. Wow. Let's listen to some music. So that was the theme music for a game I have never played, and when I read about it, it was hilarious. Jet Set Willy. Still gives you chills. Still gives me chills. <laughs> I, I, I remember um, recording um, the music from Jet Set Willy, and I was invited to a party on my street, probably about uh, probably about eight or nine years old, and I was invited to a party over the road, and I went, and uh, they told everyone to bring a tape with some music. And I brought, brought and I brought, and I bought a chip tune version of Moonlight Sonata, um, and I danced to it by myself, um, and set up a, an entire lifetime of just being willing to embarrass myself in the name of uh, video games. So it's pretty crazy because it was originally a ZX Spectrum game. I imagine you played it on the Amiga, uh, on the Amstrad, yeah, on the Amstrad. Sorry, yeah, and. Um, it was released in 1984, so that's a long time ago now. Mm, and you play yeah. as a miner. Yeah, it was very Thatcher government. It really was. It was <laughs> the first one. He was, I think, Miner Willie. I can't remember the first. Manic Miner, of course it was, yeah. Manic Miner, Manic yeah. Miner. So, Wait, so, that was the Ma- second one, wasn't it, after Jet Set Willie? Or was that the first I think one? that was the first one. Actually. Okay, okay. This was the second one. First one was Manic Miner, then it was Jet Set Willie. Then there was just crazy stuff. I think the story might have been that Miner Willie was, um, had become some kind of aristocrat. And he yeah, like, had like a mansion. It was, yeah, the game really literally has sense. nothing to do with mining. It's no, about exactly. a house party where he has to like collect beer or something. Like well, they had to go. They, uh, no, well, basically the, the whole thing is he um, uh, very near the start of the game. You walk inside the mansion and your housekeeper is um, tutting at you and waving her hand, and <laughs> she stands between you and your bed. And you want to go to bed because you're hungover and you're ill, and you've had a big party in your mansion. Let me remind you again: this is a miner. And and let us explain to the younger listeners um, a miner is a person who digs coal out of the ground. Yeah, a man who goes very deep into the ground and gets very dirty in horrible conditions, digging coal all day. So I I think he made a lot of money in Manic Miner collecting a lot of gold and stuff. And um, I think he bought a mansion. uh, And this whole story is just him exploring this crazy mansion. And um, it's like a flip screen sort of platform game. Yeah. I'm trying to think what it's reminiscent of of, of nowadays. Is there, is there many sort of? Uh, I would say it's similar. I don't know to something like Fez or Braid. Yeah, you know, sort of, of the like that, yeah. manipulating of the world kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I mean, so is that really? You're just going around collecting objects, and it's a place where everyone hates you. Um, <laughs> and, and again, but again, it had it had that kind of level of humor. Every every new room had a different name, uh, and when you died. 
a big foot Monty Python style would come down and crush you. So it had <laughs> visual motifs. Like it was just that kind of time, time of um, gaming where people used to make games in a weekend or, or a few weeks and stuff, and they just used to just let their imagination go wild. And it was a real kind of technological um, treat, really. It was 61 screens in a very small bit of memory. And although there was certain parts where you would just continually fall off the same screen and die, lose all your lives just because you were stupid enough to step off a, off a certain perch or a certain platform, uh, which was just never not annoying. And, and, and there was no saves. There was no kind of oh, like God. cheat codes and stuff. It was excruciating at best. But it just had enough uh, to keep you coming back. And, and I mean, again, for me, this is... This was the first video game I ever played. So it did come out in 1984. I probably played it around about 1987, 1986. Okay. Yeah. Um, so when you were building your sort of Amstrad collection? Well, it was... It was uh, The whole thing was... My dad's a computer engineer. Okay. Uh, sorry, my dad was an electrical engineer. Uh, he's, he's had a couple of jobs since then, but he started off weirdly enough as a miner. Then he went in the navy, and then then he then he was like um, he worked for a hospital and fixed like the uh, electric chocky chocky machines. I don't really call it, it you know, the, the different yeah. players and stuff like that, and, yeah. and the machinery there. And he was an electric engineer, and so you know his first computer was like a one k build it yourself kind of, not a million miles away from your Raspberry Pis and all this kind of like stuff you can get nowadays. Yeah, that's but, really, you know, that's like, really interesting. You'd get your chips and your breadboard and you just kind of wire up yourself. Stick it all together. And, yeah, stick it all together. It was incredibly romantic and unsatisfying time <laughs> of the time. And he'd sit there writing assembly code, assembly language to make, you know, a little ball move across the screen. And it would take him all day to do that. And he'd be like, right, okay, good. Um, and it was the time where you'd sort of sit there with a magazine, um, you know, Amstrad Action or whatever, and you'd you'd type in for days and days code, you know, lines of code that they printed in the magazine yeah. um, as a free game sort of thing. And it's it was just, um, it's, it's mad. And like, you know, you, you still hear like little stories about radio stations in America broadcasting video games across the radio where radio airwaves and stuff like that. Yeah. It was a fascinating time. And my, my first computer, um, it was quite unique. My dad built his own joypad. Now, nowadays you see hacks and you, if you've got a Boeing Boeing or Kotaku, someone's built another controller and stuff. But back then you had to, because there was, there was very few standardized, um, joypad systems. There was a Kempston on the spectrum and, and a couple of others, but there wasn't really, um, a standardized system for, for, for joypads or joysticks. So I remember my dad, um, he made a, a joypad with micro switches and like like a little um, kind of paddle Um, and he made it himself and the computer that I used so I had an Amstrad CPC I had a green screen and the luxury of a colour screen as well Um, but it was a colour screen that he'd taken out like an old fruit machine or an old like um, poker machine that he got given so he just tore out the back of it um, had this massive modulator which converted the um, electrical signals into an analogue signal for this uh, signal for this um, for this CRT screen that you pulled out of a an old poker machine that still had like the, the ghostings of its previous life that <laughs> sat, in a, sat in a pub for, for trying a, to play games decades. while there's like cards on the screen yeah, constantly exactly. and uh, and it was just and I just remember this massive modulator that was about as big as I don't know say. I don't know, the size of a massive bread bin with a big switch on the top. And um, and it was, you know, encased in this wood um, that my dad, this wooden kind of case that my dad had put there. And he'd put the um, case, he'd put the um, arcade uh, monitor into a wooden case that he'd made himself and he'd painted it himself and he'd put a bit of perspex uh, so I wouldn't smash the screen and stuff like that. And it was just... 
this wonderful kind of time in my life and I look back and I sort of think, God, there can't be that many kids who grew up with a joystick like your dad had made yourself and, that is, and a screen my dad had pulled out of an old arcade machine and, and just somehow made work because there was no standardised, you know, VGA, there was no standardised HDMI, it was just pure and simple an electrical engineer who seemed to know what he was doing. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fascinating. The, does it, apart from, you know, Raspberry Pi and stuff like that, doesn't it seem to be any case of people doing that like i've heard of people you know fiddling around with computers back in the day to you know get games working and that kind of thing but actually literally building the console yourself and taking the processor and the motherboard and and then just sticking all these spare parts of stuff together and then making it work that's incredible like disparate kind of bits and bobs and you know it would overheat occasionally like i look back and i think that's quite a romantic view and you know I've sort of said to my dad recently, that's a, there's not that many people who play their first game on, on a made-up um, made joypad. I mean, it didn't make playing Jet Set Willy very fucking easy, but it's just that <laughs> but, In fact, it was that infuriating. But, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a really interesting um, t- time in computing. There was the, the rules were off, and I think nowadays, you know, you've got your operating systems, you've got your enclosed and closed-up... Um, HDMI standards and yeah. stuff like that and so people wherever you get your telly from or wherever you get your monitor from or whatever the people don't want you messing around with it you know no. probably probably for a good reason remove this seal and your warranty is void that kind of massively thing. yeah exactly so it was a different it was a different time that there weren't really many warranties <laughs> that's my- awesome that is a really cool story that mm. is an uh, awesome story so I guess we're going to move completely on from <laughs> the very first game you played mm. uh, to a more modern game, one of the only sort of pre last generation games that you've got on your list. Yeah, sorry guys. <laughs> <laughs> so let's listen to music music from this game. <laughs> So that was the epic theme from Bethesda's Fallout 3, a game I personally love a lot myself. And it's something else, isn't it? It's it, is, it is superb. It was released in October of 2008, created by Bethesda, and it was the first 3D Fallout game. Not not a series I was really familiar with, to be quite frank. It was okay For me, it really kind of came out of nowhere, and I was like, this is just huge. I think, I think it was the first... Uh, game that really sort of made me think, wow, God, you really can stream a lot of data off off uh, off a CD-ROM, and, and and it just um, it just seemed to be endless, and 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 it, again, is that humour that, 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 that sort of drew me to it? It was funny, it was funny, it was stupid, it was jagged, it was broken, it was just ah oh, man. Some it, of the stuff you could do in that game um, just made it feel 
continuous like a very fluid story a very mm. fluid adventure you know you'd go to different parts of the map you'd never been before and there would be like always something going on yeah it wasn't always fully realized those sort of side quests and bits and bobs and, and, yeah. and exciting bits happen but there was enough there in the writing i think to to kind of kind of see it through i think i, I don't know it, again it just got the system right i think is it the vat system where you just you yeah it's the, VATS, the uh, cinematic where you can choose where you shoot uh yeah. the enemy that, that was i you know i you yeah, had a certain amount of action points that you could yeah use. You, you know blow off arms and blow off heads and stuff like that and i think it was it, it, that was the first time I've ever seen anything like that. Really, not being a massive um, kind of um, strategy guy, I never really thought you could really mix the two. Uh, and I just thought that's just such a special system. And and again, it was pleasurable to just walk around. It was pleasurable to explore. And once you've got that right, I, I don't think you, you just then it's just adding time into it I suppose it's the same with like the game that I'm right in the middle of um, Witcher 3 yeah it's just like it's it, it's just as long as you've got the major mechanics right and if your cutscenes yeah. aren't too rubbish and, you, and your story's there it's just about sitting down and adding content and content and content and when you think about the way that money's spent in video games be it on marketing or you know getting a game right just throw money at getting more content into a game because people will never complain about that never it's funny you should say that, really, because um, <clears throat> I've been playing through The Witcher 3 myself, mm. and I've been saying to a lot of my friends, it's the first game that's made me feel how I felt when I played Fallout 3 for the first time. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree with that massively. The writing, the side quests, the content, the world itself, just everything is interesting. You, you want to go look, you want to go explore... And at times, you know, you're scared of what's around the corner, but then, you know, you can blow its head off with the VAT system and that kind of thing. Just And, and it's kind of one, I think, with Witcher 3, it's like, and what Fallout 3 got right as well, I think it's all told, um, it's got a very unified style um, when it comes to writing, I think. Sometimes I think games can look a little bit like they're kind of made up of disparate assets and disparate bits of writing, and three people have written this bit and another team have written yeah, this the- but the I tone think, of Fallout seems very consistent. It, it, it very much seems like one person has written it, not like a team of eight different people where it yeah. sort of varies in style depending on where you are in the game and that kind of thing. You know how someone has dealt with this area and then someone else has dealt with that area because the tone is different. Fallout, similarly to The Witcher 3, very much consistent tone throughout the whole game. The mark of a good, great game, uh, mark of an excellent game, an incredible game, um, is that people are still playing it and still putting in mods and yeah. you know, all kinds of business. The mod scene on Fallout 3 is huge. Yeah, yeah. Second only to something like Skyrim or, or GTA, I'd, I'd say, uh, for, for, from my perspective. I think only yesterday, I think it was, um, people are still finding interesting things about the game. Um, the, one of the trains that um, appear in one of the DLCs. Did you read about this? Uh, no, I haven't. It's so fascinating. I love kind of like peering back and, and sort of figuring out how they've done different things. But um, there's a train that I think carries a uh, president or something in one of the DLCs of Fallout 3 that was proving hard to program. So what they did was they just made a, a, a train-shaped hat for an NPC and just ran the NPC underneath the map. So it ran like a train. <laughs> just that botching of it. And just, yeah. we'd never know. We'd never that know. It sounds like the kind of hacks in development that you've just got no time left. You don't know what to do. You're just like, oh, fuck it. It was like the guy who, um, I can't remember which video game it was, but like um, every time you quit the game, it would say error. 
And so all they did was, instead of like getting rid of the error itself, they just changed the error word to say, thank you for playing. <laughs> thank you for playing Wing Commander or something. <laughs> Which I think is just wonderful. It's like you're, you're up against it, you're in crunch time, and you yeah. just get it done. Put a ha- put a train on that person's head. Just do something. It's, do something. it's, it's a relevant just, one. Just do it. We can't get trains to work. We can't get trains to work. And, that, and that's why they've never had vehicles on Fallout. It's kind of retro-futuristic, but everything's broken. So they've never really needed to use the vehicles which I quite like you know all the uh, all the fossil fuels are, are a distant memory I think it's yeah. just it was just goofy loved running around one of my favourite scenes uh, in Fallout 3 is where you know again you might have played for 50 hours and you might not have experienced this part of the map there's a there's like a creepy um, nuclear family they're going about their business and it's kind of like idyllic 50s um, yeah, you know, yeah. house and you walk in and um, and you think this is a bit weird why are these in the middle of this wasteland why are these people having this wonderful time in this idyllic uh, nuclear family 50s um, uh, environ in their home? And you're like, well, it's a bit weird. And so you go out the back, and in their shed, they're eating humans. Yeah. And, and then all hell breaks loose. The shit hits the fan. They're chasing you around with, like, chainsaws and stuff. And it's just, it's so exciting because it goes from that, this is a really weird thing to find. What's their story? And then you go yeah. out the back and, and I can't even remember how it was even dealt with, but I just remember like seeing a lot of people like hot on spits. It was really dark. It was really dark. It just, so it went from being this beautiful kind of like relaxing kind of scene to this, oh my God, you need to get out. This is so frightening. And so, and, and, and that's what Fallout 3 brought to the party. I think. Yeah, I think like it went from being kind of humorous and kind of silly, like, you know, you got the robots with their really quirky voices mm. going around and that kind of thing. But then, I don't know if you remember, there's a, a mission, I don't remember the exact details, but it's like a you're in a computer program and you're stuck in, like, a flashback of the 50s yes, before the bombs are right, yeah. And that's really creepy because you're dealing with, like, a, a computer program that is, like, personified as a child. Mm, that's correct, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's, that's really correct. creepy. And that I remember that part being, like, what is going on? And it's very similar to the family that are eating the humans. There are parts in Fallout that you remind you you're in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Like, people will do anything to survive. Yeah, yeah. And, and people will fuck you up if <laughs> <laughs> you are not going to comply with them. And it just, yeah. it got, it it took you from humorous to dark and it was just all unease, really just interesting. General, just general sort of unease. Yeah, definitely, um, unease, yeah. Constant, if you weren't being chased by something, you were being stalked by something. If you weren't being sniped by something, you were in a creepy situation. Um, and if you weren't just running away from bloody big scorpions and stuff that had got massive because <laughs> of, of the fallout, it was just... And again, great soundtrack as well. The um, is the Ink Spots that did. did uh, yeah, did, did, I don't want to set the world on fire. And, such uh, a beautiful start. You had uh, Danny Kane, uh, yeah. Civilization, and beautiful, wonderful songs. Absolutely yeah. wonderful songs from the fifties period and pre forties kind of period. Yeah, and st- stylish and like yeah, I think I found out quite recently. Um, the guy, the Pit Boy guy, um, Vault the, Boy, the Vault Boy, Vault Boy. That's right. Um, so the Vault Boy logo of the kids with his thumb up. Yeah, I, f- I found out about. The, uh, do, you, do you know this, like the um, the the mushroom cloud thing? No. He's so he's got his thumb up, right? In pretty much every depiction of him, if he's a not lot of depictions of him have him like with a really enlarged like hand coming towards yeah, you. Exactly. So um, the back then, I think in the fifties and sixties, when they were doing nuclear testing and when there was this constant threat of uh, nuclear disaster, apparently the rule of thumb 
literally the rule of thumb, uh, would be if you put your thumb up, if you could see a mushroom cloud that just exploded, and if you put your thumb out with outstretched arm, and if the mushroom cloud was bigger than your thumb, you would be experiencing radiation. But if it was smaller than your thumb, you were fine. And wow. that's and that's why Vault Boy's always got his thumb out because he's checking the air. He's checking how big the mushroom <laughs> He's checking is. if he's dead or not. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this doesn't. I've got very small hands, so I don't know. I don't. So know. your mushroom cloud would be smaller than yeah, mine, exactly. Or I larger. don't know. Maybe, maybe it would. Maybe my arms are longer to, <laughs> to work it out or shorter. I don't know. I don't right. know. But, yeah. uh, but I just love like I just love that kind of level of detail and level of thought. And I went to E three for the first time uh, ever this this year and. They had a tiny corner dedicated to like you, you know Dishonored and, and a couple yeah. of Bethesda uh, titles, and just seeing a pit point, I was so excited. I'm, uh, I'm the so special excited. edition for Fallout Four. Oh. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've never paid for a special edition for a video game. I've occasionally been sent one, and you do sort of sit there going, oh, "Really?" But I think I might have to break my duck for that one. Oh. Very well, have to break well, my. Duck. Do you hear that, Bethesda? Do you, what <laughs> you've done? Well, I guess we're going to have to sort of push on with your last three. Yeah. Because uh, we're unfortunately running out of time. So we'll move on to your next game. Mm. Another game I have no idea about. Sorry. <laughs> so let's listen to some music. <laughs> So that was from The Adventures of Robin Hood, a game from MS-DOS, Amiga, and Amstrad. Yeah. And it I was mean, released in 1991. Yeah. What, <laughs> what is this game? There's some box art pictures of it with actually having Kevin Costner from Robin Hood. Right, yeah, okay. Um, but the game follows nothing to do with Kevin Costner. It plays, <laughs> it plays fast and loose with the very idea of Robin Hood. Okay. I mean... I mean, you start, uh, the start of the game is you get kicked out of your castle. Uh, the sheriff has come in and kicked you out of your castle, and your job is to basically overthrow him. Uh, so you start as a bit of an outcast. But, um, yeah, it's, it's again, fast and loose with the, with the old uh, Robin Hood. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, when did Robin Hood have a castle? <laughs> well, exactly. That's what I don't understand. It's, it's just weird. But it's a truly interesting and truly beautiful game. Now, every evening I, I do a radio show uh, on, on Radio Show, got Absolute Radio, and... If there's one criticism of me as a presenter, I'm not really that relatable. And I think I've done this <laughs> exact same thing to you. I've stunk up your podcast something rotten. So You've got some but... absolutely fantastic stories about these games. That <laughs> I would rather listen to people talk about their fathers building their own personal game system <laughs> than, you know, sort of hearing about modern games that I've played myself. That's not relatable, is it? I mean, people want to hear about it's Zelda. It's not relatable, people. They want to hear about, about Disney. What? They want to hear about, I don't know. <laughs> it's not about being relatable. It's about <laughs> what, what has inspired you personally and, like, why is The Adventures of Robin Hood on this list again? Is it, sort of, does it take you back to that time when you were playing games on the Amstrad and that kind of thing? 
Although I'd never played um, a Fallout game, it was a bit Fallout 2 y or Fallout 1 y. It was an isometric uh, video game on the Amiga. Yeah. Played on. Oh, yeah, it was on the Amiga. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a... back in the day. Yeah. Um, I don't actually know who made it, but I'm sure. It was, that... a, it was a company called First Light. The all conquering first striker, whatever the hell you said. I think so. There was a video game, um, Utopia, um, back in the day, um, that was um, uh, fairly popular. Utopia and Populous as well. These kind of um, strategy games that were, yeah. were built over this, this kind of almost. I think Utopia was the first god game, maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe those little computer people on, on the old Amstrad. I'm going back a bit now. But um, it was just a beautifully realised world and I remember at the time going this is a real treat it's a real spectacular realisation of a living breathing um, town um, so as I said you start as an outcast in the wilderness and you kind of just you're just in the middle of nowhere and you don't so much control Robin Hood is you kind of just cajole him you just tell him to sort of go over here and he might listen to you he might not um, and a little bit like um, the, the most charming bits of some, uh, Grand Theft Auto five when you switch characters okay. uh, if you ignore them for any level, level of time they just bugger off and do something else <laughs> and so and that's what happened with robin hood if you sort of decided to sort of skim over the um, the rest of the map to see what was going on um you, you, robin hood would just go off and do different things he'd you know, just, he'd, he'd just he'd, go off by himself <laughs> he'd, he'd just drop from the rich give the power he just practice a bit of archery um and it was the first game I'd ever played with, like things like seasons. Okay. So you, there would be snow on the ground. This beautiful kind of like uh, beautifully realised, you know, isometric uh, world. It wasn't too big, but it was big enough for the Amiga anyway. And it was the first game that had side quests um, for me. You could just sort of just you, you you'd just be strolling around and you'd see much like Witcher Three. You know, there'll be a hanging scene okay. where someone's being hanged, and you have a decision whether to intervene, get your boy out, and, and and kill the fellas who were, who were hanging a man, or you, you just watch these the monks bury someone, or you, you just go to this pool and watch like the local ladies bathe. And it was just <laughs> it was charming. It was colourful. Um, the controls were dreadful i mean they were abhorrent they were sticky he'd refuse to do what you wanted him to do <laughs> it was it was like a cross between like a you know it was a cross between an adventure and a and a, and a um a god game in that you didn't really have full control but it was the first time i'd ever seen side quests and you'd just be strolling around and you'd, the minstrels would be singing and it was it, following on from turbo esprit where it was just like it was just a, a fully realized world um, where things would happen whether you were there or not, and again, it was the first time I'd ever seen like um, like a reputation system. Okay. So you'd have like cowardly, brave, pessimistic, and optimistic, which I can't even remember how you became more pessimistic or optimistic. Just but, word watching people get hanged out. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But it was like the, the main one was villain versus hero, and that was kind of the most important one. And my favourite bit about being a proper horror in that game by killing locals or killing like a minstrel that was doing you nothing because you were playing some terrible music, um, that the locals would just start heckling you as you walked past, much like the modern um, open world games of today. They'd just yeah. be going, oh, Robin Hood, what a terrible person you turned out of me and stuff like that. And <laughs> I'd recommend just watching a couple of videos because it, it was the earliest example of like... Um, uh, an almost top-down, almost isometric um, video game where anything could happen. Glitches were funny. At one point, like, I think you pulled a... It was a dragon, again, fast and loose with the Robin Hood uh, myth. A dragon would appear and you'd help him out and then he gave you the ability to breathe fire and then you'd just go to the um, sheriff's castle and just start breathing fire everywhere. <laughs> what? It's impossible. <laughs> it was... 
Um, it was just chaotic. It was just... The more I think about it, the more I want to play it, and the more I think about um, how do you create a book disc in 2015. I don't know. I just don't I know. Would, and I would... I'm not saying do this. I would assume emulation. I, I appreciate there's a DOS box somewhere. Yeah, probably, there is probably one somewhere. <laughs> but well, yeah, it was just wonderful. Loved it. Yeah, awesome. And again, like finally, like um, one of uh, something I've not said before. Like yeah. I think one of the reasons why I, you know, I rushed to the end of Monkey Island Two, rushed to the end of uh, you know certain parts of Fallout Three, maybe, and, and certainly The Witcher. Okay. Mass Effect. The, the major driving force for me finishing a video game is always love. It's always romance. It's always trying to get the girl. My, my major style of playing Mass Effect was do a mission, get back on your ship, ask if anyone wants to have sex. And then, <laughs> then, right, nobody fancies it. Right, let's get back out again. Do one more mission, come back. Does anyone have sex yet? And I know sex isn't love, but when it comes to narrative, the most powerful thing for me is um, romance. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe I just haven't read enough Barbara Cartland novels. And I, <laughs> I similarly... Uh, similarly? <laughs> I uh, had a similar experience where... Um, I romance Tally in Mass Effect. Mm. And I remember playing Mass Effect 3 with a friend, and there is a scene with the Geth and Tally's race. I forget what they're actually called. Mm. But there's a bit where you choose basically either Tally or the Geth. Yeah. And if you choose the Geth, Tally commits suicide. Right, okay. Oh, good lord. And I remember him choosing the Geth. And I had no control. I remember being like emotionally broken and being like, "No, what are you doing?" I need to go upstairs and have a think about what you've done. Quite frankly, exactly. And it's like, yeah, you as you said, the narrative. One of the more powerful narratives is connections with characters. Mm. Not so much what happens with them, but the interactions you have with them, especially like in most recent examples, The Witcher, yeah. where you have really powerful interactions with characters, and then stuff happens. You know sex and that kind of thing and you you feel almost more invested with that character and to make sure they're safe and that kind of thing usually i mean you that know, pushes I, it I'm, forward I'm the... well we're going to move on to your next two games uh unfortunately we're out of time and so we'll move on to your next game let's listen to a lovely piece of music So that was a piece from The Day of the Tentacle. Yay. <laughs> An absolutely fantastic uh, point-and-click adventure game from LucasArts. Similar vein to Monkey Island 2. Uh, and it was actually one of the first outings as a director for Tim Schafer. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely kind of Monkey Island 2 goofed up to the max. Like, oh, absolutely. He just, he just, from the art style... Every doorway was triangular. Everything was. Every background was just stupid and ridiculous. <laughs> and, and the history in there as well. I still 
take a lot of my you know knowledge of the founding fathers of Edison um, kind of from, um, from from this game. And again, I, I think it, it, more than anything else, it was my first. It was the reason why I got a PC. I jumped from Amiga to PC just to play this game. Um, I remember playing the shareware demo or whatever it was, the first few screens of it. Um, with the fake bath in the opening scene and um, chattering teeth. I remember going into a, a PC shop, a, a computer shop um, called Peak Computers in Hartlepool, just to play um, the shareware version of uh, the, the demo of um, Day of the Tentacle. It was the first, it was, it, again, you know, the animation was just like Monkey Island, but to the nth degree. Yeah, they'd stepped uh, it up a lot for days. Massively. Very the, much, um, they really wanted to make like a basically an interactive cartoon and vocally it was the first time i sort of heard um speech in a video game maybe uh, yeah. to, to that degree anyway to that degree and it was just wow i actually want to hear what these people say to be quite right and i think when i first started playing it the three having three central characters was quite jarring but then i sort of started to understand how old was i probably about um uh, 14 or 15 yeah. maybe a little bit younger I started to understand why they did that and, and, and if you're stuck on a single puzzle uh, in one time frame you could go back and figure it out uh, with 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 another character start another character and and, and see where their um, story has, has got to it was it, definitely something that hadn't really de- been done before at the time no it sort of it reminds me a lot of um, Resident Evil 2 where you can sort of either be uh, Claire or Leon and you can sort of any items you take from one area won't be there for the other character and you sort of have to think about like almost dual minds about what you're going to do yeah yeah the puzzles as well Dave Grossman as a fellow went on to do um, a little bit of stuff for Telltale as well I think he was kind of the puzzle designer for that and just things like the the time travel um, element to it you'd put like um, I think you put like a, 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 um, a bottle of wine somewhere uh, back in the 1700s, 1800s, whatever. And by the time it gets to future times, uh, it's become vinegar. If, so if you need some vinegar, you put it in this particular chest freezer that hasn't been touched for a century. And, and, and little bits like that. I, I, even now, I have quoted the fact that if you put, if you keep wine for long enough, it becomes vinegar. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> You've just <laughs> basically in, taken it as fact and I spread it across. The Edison put a fork on a kite. I don't know if that's true. I've probably <laughs> said that in the past. Like, I've used genuine, you know, I've had conversations about historical um, events of, of the Founding Fathers um, from this video game because because I'm incredibly um, well, badly advised, and also I just, <laughs> I just I just love it so much. And again, just the characters were wonderful. The animation was incredible, and the three distinct characters were fantastic. And and they managed to um, you could tell the difference between um, what Maniac Mansion brought to the table, and I think what Gilbert um, didn't understand about making a, a compulsive um, experience. It just threw everything out and just. They yeah. just had a lot more fun with it. And yeah, it was a, it was a similar style, but it seemed to be a bit more wacky. Like, yeah, it wasn't, it, like some parts of Monkey Island could be quite serious, and yeah. Maniac Mansion kind of. But Day of the Tentacle, I remember just being crazy, essentially. Yeah, it was. I just remember it being endlessly um, interesting. There was always something to look at. There was always something to prod. There was always something to um, lift up or look at, and it was just. It was just brilliantly funny. It was just so damn funny. Um, and 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 again, you know, the puzzles were excellent. And I think it was a, a real. It was the game after Monkey Island Two that made me think, "Wow, yeah, I really do love point and clicks." Yeah. It, although 
you know, there's a lot of crappy point and clicks out there, but I, I just remember sort of thinking, yeah, I think this is definitely my genre. I, I like the <laughs> like Dead Scratcher. I think anyone now from now on can tell from the li- this list what kind <laughs> of games to buy for you. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I think so. But yeah. <laughs> well, let's, speaking of point and click adventures, we might as well move on to your last game. Oh god, is this going to be my last game? I, I know what this is. Good lord, this is your last game, and this is a <laughs> massive departure from Day of the Tentacle to a bit more <laughs> of a serious tone. So we're going to listen to some music. So that was some very creepy music from a game that absolutely horrified me when I played it when I was eight years old. Right. And that's Darkseed. You're one of the very few people who have played that uh, video game, I think it's fair to say. I played the... It's because I played a game called Shivers. Right, okay. I don't know if you ever played that. I do remember it kind of... Was it, was it like a 3D Doom kind of uh, Wolfenstein kind of yeah, game? Yeah, kind of, but it was like you went into like an old museum or mansion of like right. a crazy scientist and it was essentially a horror game. But Darkseed kind of reminds me of a really early version of that game. And I remember a friend telling me about it and I played it because uh, I think my uncle had it. Um, and it horrified me. The art for anyone who doesn't know about Darkseed is done by the very famous alien designer, H.R. Geiger. Mm. And it's a point-and-click adventure game that was released in 1992, and it horrified me. I don't know about you, Pete. I don't know about you. It horrified me and scared me, um, not only because of the genuinely quite spooky uh, kind of graphics and that, um, and, you know, style and, you know, H.R. Geiger being involved and stuff like that. Uh, It was fundamentally broken, uh, it was again goofy, but for completely um, unintentionally. It was dreadful at times, um, and as I think I mentioned before, I think some of my favourite games have been a little bit broken and a little bit rough around the edges. And I, I think I sort of look back to you know formative game experiences and stuff. And one of my favourite uh, video games was um, a game called Bo- Boiling Point, um, and it was like a three D open world crappy adventure. It had one of the baddies out of twenty four, I seem to recall, one of like the um, like I don't know, a generic bad Middle Eastern man. <laughs> bad they, man they number one. There, bad man number one. Um, and they put him in, and that was the big kind of draw. They used someone from Twenty Four that that year, and and Boiling Point was so broken. Like you'd have all grannies getting run over. They'd have man, uh, male voices, and and there was so much wrong with that game. The collision section was dreadful. You'd fall through the map, um, and there was like a litany of sins that the, the developers um, put out when they put out the game. And the first patch, they, there was a million things wrong with this video game, and the first patch they put out was uh, they made the moon a little bit smaller. <laughs> and that was, that was it. That's all they'd done to it. 
everything else is broken. Everything else is but broken. But we need to focus on the fact exactly. that the moon is massive. It's to make the moon smaller. And, <laughs> and, and that's what I like about Darkseed, is that um, it was fundamentally broken. It was... Um, Weird. It was so it was all digitized graphics. So it was like yeah, yeah it was around about the same time you saw video games like Mortal Kombat and, and Pit Fighter. But this yeah, was on, uh, the, was a, vi- the games that started to use like full motion video, basically. Yeah, the yeah. Early Sierra, Sierra games used a, yeah. a full motion video. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the, your, your police quests and stuff. Were yeah, quite popular. Certainly from Police Quest three or four. Um, but the, your protagonist is a guy called uh, Mike Dawson, and. Um, <laughs> the best thing about the game is the designer of the game was called Mike Dawson and <laughs> the main guy is Mike Dawson they gave this man Mike Dawson a ridiculous amount of money to make a video game a grotesque amount of money so what he did was <laughs> he spent all the money on HR Geiger doing the backgrounds and then he realised oh I better, we needed a central character and he just put himself in the video game <laughs> a bad dressed <laughs> Man in like a donkey jacket and a big sausage moustache, like he's from the seventies. Um, it, it was just ridiculous. Like he just put himself in the video game. It's a video game that's set over three days. Uh, the opener is um, it's a man who wakes up with a hangover and after a dream uh, where he's got like a, an alien in his head. Um, and the, you know, as the story goes, it was no dream. He basically, you know, he, he slipped over to the other side there and got an alien. Um, an alien bombed him in the head, basically. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember very much about it, but I remember the alien bit, and I was being eight and just being like, "What is going on?" Like, yeah, no just screaming and, and and this kind of like you know, again, this is beautifully uh, realized Hitchhiker Geiger drawing uh, animation of um, you know inserting a you know an embryo into this man's head. But the man looked just so goofy. That's what I couldn't get over. He was such a goofy chap. Um, I just just Google Darkseid and check out some of the screenshots. This man does not look like any other video game character you'll ever <laughs> play. With me. And, and 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 just the technical kind of um, uh, you know aspects to it as well. Like um, when the company approached, I think they're called Cyber Dreams. They pr- approached uh, HR Geiger about making the artwork for the game. Um, he didn't want to use the VGA mode, like which was like three hundred and twenty by. 240 graphics or 200 yeah. graphics maybe yeah. and he wanted like a higher resolution but they, so they, they so it, couldn't fit it or something they couldn't fit so the developers agreed to use like a kind of what you it's probably VHS 640 by 300 and something so it gave him a few more pixels and it made the graphics look a bit better but it reduced the palette from 256 colours to 16 colours so <laughs> It was just it was just one bad decision after it was another. Like the, all over the place. Oh, it was dreadful, but I love it because it just reminds me of being a kid and just going, I, "This is so broken." Like there would be there would be and, and everything had to be done in a, in a specific time frame. So there'd be points where y- you just couldn't win the game. It was set over three days, and if you didn't do something at a certain time, it w- but it wouldn't tell you you couldn't win the game. It would still make you sort of continue doing it. Um, but yeah, it was just oh, so broken and so wonderful. I just love experiences like that because you just think you could have done this so much better, but you didn't, and it's made it better for it. I love it. <laughs> One of those uh, good bad games. Yeah, oh, wonderful, love it. Just charming, but in every other way, completely broken. Don't want to play it. Would be happy to watch a YouTube playthrough of it. <laughs> maybe you should do that, Pete. Maybe yeah, you should do a new venture, it. playing really bad Amstrad <laughs> and Amiga games for people to watch, <laughs> so they don't have to play it themselves. So you yeah, can go exactly. through the frustrations. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess 
you're going to have to shoot off in a minute because you have a radio show. I do have a radio show, unfortunately, yeah. And sort of talking about that, thank you very much for coming on to I'd, I'd happily give you another eight um, video games that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely amazing talking to you, being a fan of your work and just being able to talk to you today about video games was an absolute pleasure. No, Tell us basically where we can hear more of you. Um, well, I guess the Football Ramble will be kicking back in uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Which uh, I cannot it's, wait it's, for. Yeah, it's. Um, I think we're putting out a paid-for one this week, but there's, um, the, the, the season um, proper starts after we come back from Dublin. We're doing a live show in Dublin. Tickets are available at footballramble.com if you are in Dublin. And also, uh, we'll be back very soon as the um, season starts. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And, as someone and... who has been to the Football Ramble live, you definitely should check it out if you're in Dublin. <laughs> it's absolutely hilarious. It's. Uh, I do like the live ones. They're a lot of fun. You should do this live. Let's do this live. <laughs> we should do this live. We should definitely have a repeat of this episode with some more of your crazy ass games i will i will pick some proper games next time no 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 keep keep them crazy it's fantastic uh what's your twitter handle if anyone wants to check uh, you yes. out uh, at pete donaldson oh plain oh. and simple awesome Easy peasy. Well, thank uh, yeah. you very much pete it's been an absolute pleasure and yeah, thank you i'm liam edwards and you can check me out on twitter at liam bmw thank you very much for listening please subscribe on itunes when this eventually goes live on itunes we're also going to have uh, our website whatever the usual stuff that you can find podcasts thank you very much for listening